we just have this incredible attunement to our own embarrassing behaviors. So if you've ever done something embarrassing, whatever it is, you probably lay in bed at night for three nights kind of iterating over that, but no one else is paying attention to you as much as we pay attention to ourselves. And we have a really hard time correcting this bias. We live in our heads and we forget how much others are attuning to that stuff, like as it happens. I mean, we're all the star of our own play, right? Yeah, that's right. Welcome. You're on air with Ella, where we share simple strategies and tips from people who are doing something better than we are. Whether it's wellness or relationships to just living better and with more energy or changing your mindset to accomplish more in your own life and succeeding however you define it. This is where we share the best of what we're learning from the experts and we're learning more every day. Live better. Start now. Let's go. Hey, you're on here with Ella. It's your host, Ella. I am joined today by Tessa West, who wrote the most fun book I've read recently called Jerks at Work. Tessa, you had me at hello. (laughs) How are you? I'm doing great. Could you tell everybody who you are and what you do? Yes. So I am a social psychology professor at New York University, and I study uncomfortable social interactions. Everything from asking for feedback to telling your boss that they're terrible at their job to breaking up with somebody at work, you know, getting them off your team, all these kinds of uncomfortable things. We study in my lab, we measure people's behaviors, their physiology and their stress to just kind of understand what the big picture looks like. You wrote a book, like I said, called Jerks at Work. But really what I want to talk to you about today are the themes in that book that I found so interesting. And they're universal, quite frankly. But you are a social psychologist and you say you study how people communicate. And I think you've been doing that for like two decades by this point. What on earth inspired you to write a book about jerks at work and why now? I was a real jerk at work. (laughs) Despite studying these things for two decades and I, and I know the principles behind what makes people, you know, act horribly towards each other. It didn't stop me from doing a lot of these things. And I think sometimes our instincts just really work against us. We have ideas of what we think will make social situations go more smoothly that just really go against the science. And even for someone like me who knows the science, I constantly was kind of fighting these intuitions that were getting me in trouble. And I figured if I can't do these things. Who else can do these things? You know, (laughs) no one learns how to to deal with difficult people at work. And I thought it'd be fun to write a book that's supposed to be a little bit humorous, take a serious topic and make it funny and just make it really applicable and kind of break it down for people so they can actually do things. They can actually develop strategies around these issues. Yeah. You get really specific about the hows and the whys and the what's. And I love that. So it's not just, you know, high level advice. You actually get very specific. I'm obsessed with effective communication. It's a huge part of what I do professionally. It's obviously a huge part of day to day. And I thought what was so interesting about your writing is that so many of the principles apply, whether it's a personal relationship, a professional relationship, a romantic relationship. I mean, my God, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because there's only so many ways to skin a cat when it comes to communicating. The same problems we have with our spouses and our kids show up when we talk to our bosses. They're actually pretty similar. And so as a scientist, this is fun because I can draw from the marriage literature to like teach people how to talk to a, you know, a coworker and the same basic rules apply. 
It's funny that you say that, that you drew from some marriage literature, because I have worked, some of the people that I work with professionally, I've worked with for 20 years now. And I joke all the time, you know, you guys, we've been married a long time. <laughs> you know, like I'll kick off a conversation that way because anyone that you are going to be working with, dealing with, communicating with on an ongoing basis, you have to dig deep into your relational toolkit if you're going to make it work and you're not going to be basically miserable every day or struggling every day. So I definitely want to get into these universal principles, but first let's focus on jerks at work just to share kind of a framework with everybody. You share an overview of basically a taxonomy of jerks at work. And I just want you to say, I'm going to share all of them. Will you say kind of one thing about each one just so we can Mm -hmm. put, put them in context? Okay. The first one is kiss up, kick down. Who is the kiss up, kick down kind of colleague? They are the talented person who the boss loves, who tortures everyone at the same level as them or those beneath them to get ahead. And they're just infuriating to deal with because the boss really likes them often more than you. Because they manage up, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, the version uh, executive sees is quite a different version than than anyone below them, so to speak. Right. Okay, credit stealers. Do they exist, Tessa? Oh, yes, of course they do. (laughs) Credit stealers are your best friends, your confidants, your new boss who really just gets you to trust them. So you share all your ideas with them. You kind of go through the idea development stage with them. And then they steal them when you least expect it. But then they'll also grant credit for kind of small, stupid things to cover their tracks. Never, never met one. Okay. (laughs) Here's the one that I am. Also, I'm an Enneagram 8. We just decided on an earlier episode. So this makes perfect sense. I am what you call a bulldozer. Could you please tell us what's wrong with me? (laughs) You do not have an inner monologue. Everything in your head just comes out of your mouth. I feel attacked. (laughs) Most bulldozers, so some bulldozers talk a lot, but most of them are actually a lot worse than that. They they have an agenda and if they don't get their way, they'll go behind the scenes to tell the boss or the boss's boss to not trust the process by which decisions are made. Oh, no one really knew what that vote was for. People didn't have a chance to speak up. It was really unclear what was happening. And then the boss will think, this doesn't sound right at all. I think we should go back to the drawing board and, and redo this whole thing. And so if you're on a team with one of these people, everything just ends in an impasse. Nothing ever gets accomplished because they're sabotaging you behind the scenes. Oh, I'm pleased to report I'm not quite that diabolical. Yeah. <laughs> so free riders, talk to us about the free riders. Free riders loved the pandemic because every team that they were working on was pretty independent. So they could kind of just make up excuses about why they weren't doing work and kind of like a spouse having an affair where their, you know, their lover and their wife are living in two cities. They, they never actually cross stories. So they get away with doing this partly because they're charismatic and fun and they know all the gossip. So you don't really want to kick them off the team and you make up excuses for them because they bring a lot of kind of social element to the group. They're fun. This is wild because when I was in business school, and I think I think most business schools do this, but everything is done by the team. So you're put in a team typically of, say, about five people. Yep. And every single assignment is team-based because they're trying to mimic the real world. And we had a free rider on our business school team, and everyone did all the work except this one person. And this one person was extremely social, extremely outgoing, always, always up for a laugh. And- yeah did nothing. <laughs> I bet this person showed up to do the presentation at the end of the semester though. hundred oh, so, percent. And then they do a great job, right? They could be like an MC. 
And everyone's like, wow, that person did so much work. Did you see what the delivery was like? And you're like, they really just showed up in the last 10 minutes. By the way, this was 20 years ago, but as you can see, I'm still healing. (laughs) Okay. We cannot leave off the micromanagers. I think most people are familiar, but share your definition with us, Tessa. So micromanagers oversee everything, no matter how important it is. So some managers will oversee the really important stuff. Micromanagers will oversee your font size, graphics, they'll oversee the lighting in your office as much as like big picture things. And so the irony is they work the hardest and they get the least done. And if you work for them, the same is true. You're just constantly spinning your wheels. Okay. How about the neglectful bosses? So the neglectful boss is actually also a micromanager. So most people think that neglectful bosses are always disappearing, but if that was the case, they would have gotten fired. Most of them show up at the 11th hour and micromanage to get rid of that anxiety they feel from not being in the loop. So they show up, they crash your meeting, they exert a bunch of top-down control over you, you freak out, you make the changes, which they may or may not look at, and then they completely disappear again. And then they kind of go through this process over and over again. I'm giggling because I know so I know my listeners, I know that so many of us are nodding our heads right now thinking of people in particular, but also this is so transferable to romantic relationships yep. and dating. <laughs> I actually am a close relationship researcher too. So it's hard for me to separate the two in my head. Okay. Are we dating? Are we at work? We don't know. Okay. The last one in your taxonomy of jerks at work is gaslighters. Now, gaslighting is wildly overused. The term is wildly overused in the zeitgeist right now. Can you tell us what it is really when it comes to relationship dynamics? Yes. Gaslighters are dishonest liars. So I think a lot of us Every time we're lied to, we accuse someone of gaslighting. But the additional component is that they isolate you socially. And the reason why is because their lies kind of build toward an alternative reality of what's going on. You know, maybe they're inventing something really cool or they're stealing ideas. Usually they're doing something unethical they're trying to cover up. And in order for them to get away with that level of dishonesty, they cut you off from your friends, from other leaders, from coworkers. So no more happy hour, no more lunches out, no more coffee shops. And that isolation is what really distinguishes them from people who just lie all the time at work. Well, since we are zooming out and really looking at this kind of universally, if you will, can we spend a minute here? Because again, this is this it, this is a term bantied about quite a bit lately. And I just want to share an interesting way that you wrote about this. I thought this was so interesting. You said gaslighters differ from everyday liars in that they try to isolate their victims. That's what you just said. They typically take one of two approaches. One, they make their victims feel like part of something special. Or two, they make victims question their self-worth. And I assume that part of that happens by convincing you isn't there an element of like trying to make you feel like the crazy one, so to speak? What does that look like in relationship dynamics? They have to kind of shake you from not just the reality of the world around you, but from your stable sense of self, right? They have to detach you from that. So for instance, say you go into a relationship and we can leave kind of the workplace behind. Let's say you go into a romantic relationship and you're a very confident, independent person. Say you've been living alone your whole life. They'll tell you things like, are you sure you know how to pay the electricity bill? Or you don't seem to know how to load the dishwasher. Or you don't seem to have these basic life skills. I'm actually talking about my admin. So <laughs> all of these things can happen. And all of a sudden, you go from someone who's confident and self-assured and actually have evidence that you could do these things to questioning that reality. And over time, you really detach from your sense of who you are, from your sense of self. You don't know who you are anymore. You start to question who this person is. And, and they take that instability and how to run with it. 
what is the antidote to a gaslighter? Because I know from witnessing people in that, having that experience, they don't know they're in it because they're questioning themselves so much. They're not relying on their intuition, which typically is kind of ringing in the background, but they're unable to trust their own instincts. So what is an antidote to that, Tessa? I think it's really tough when you're in this situation. I think the minute you start to see a a change in how you feel about yourself, so kind of leaving the other person aside, forgetting whether they're lying or not, once you start questioning your sense of who you are, that's a red flag that you might be being gaslit. Then you need to start taking these very small steps, documenting things, showing your gaslighter kind of what you wrote down. Gaslighters hate documentation. They hate evidence. Reaching back out to your social network because they probably have cut you off. So little by little, bringing people back in and reminding yourself that those people aren't in your network because they don't like you, because they hate you or whatever your gaslighter is telling you. It's because you've become socially invisible to them. You've disappeared. You've disengaged. The onus is actually on you to try to pull them back in because from their perspective, you don't want anything to do with them anymore. You're the one that pushed them away. And I think that's actually very hard for victims to admit that they're the ones that did the pushing. And it's really hard to kind of see yourself as having the agency there because in the rest of your relationship, you don't have that agency. So those are kind of the first steps you'd want to do. Okay. And I definitely want to get into more tips for effective communication. But what I'd like to do before we get into that, Tessa, is I'd really like to talk about some concepts that you share in your book that I would really like to hear you expand upon. And the first one was the idea of what you call social comparison orientation, which is that a psychological term? Mm -hmm. There's actually a test for it. You can take, find out like how high on this you are. Okay. Tell us what that is. Social comparison orientation, because I think it's prolific. Yeah. So if you can think about everyone you work with, yourself included, some people are just very obsessed with comparing themselves to everyone around them and not just on relevant dimensions, but on irrelevant dimensions too. So naturally we compare ourselves to our coworkers, to people who are at the same level as us when they get a raise and we don't. People high on social comparison orientation have like this nervous tick to do it all the time for everything, everything from the size of your office, you know, to relevant things like how much bonus you got to irrelevant things, like whether you're happy in your relationship, whether your kids are doing better in school than their kids are doing. They really kind of let it spread pretty wildly throughout their, their lives, throughout all of the domains. And when you're really high on this, you know, you're constantly attuned to who's competition in your world you know, either your dating world or your, your children, I, if anyone with kids who's ever dealt with another child's parents has seen this kind of thing happen, you know, and in the workplace, you know, it's obviously kind of just runs amok. So it really can spread though, kind of throughout all of these different domains. Okay. So am I to understand then that social comparison orientation is a matter of degrees and it's mm-hmm. normal and common, but it's a matter of degrees as to whether it's unhealthy or healthy. Yeah, there's unhealthy and unhealthy, and then there's the ability to turn it on and off. So it is not useful to get your work done to know exactly how many hours and minutes the person in the cubicle next to you came to work today. Like that level of comparison, that data is just not important for you. It doesn't help you do your job better. It doesn't inform kind of your next move. And so when you're high on this, it's actually just very distracting for people because they have a very hard time kind of focusing on the work that they need to be doing and instead kind of spend all their mental energy looking around at other people's um, you know, work and what they're doing. So they can't turn it off. And then it's just very widespread, but it is a matter of degree. Some of us don't do it at all. That's pretty rare. And some of us do it all the time with everything. 
Well, and I mean, sorry to be, to state the obvious, but isn't social media nothing but social comparison? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that it's bad what it is. <laughs> and it's bad, you know, on the whole, it is not good for humanity to engage in social comparison orientation all the time. And it does things like really creating a false version of your life on social media. You know, there's this great research showing kind of the more you brag about your relationship, the, the less happy you actually are. So it can perpetuate, it can, it can actually directly feed back into your relationships. When you do this all the time, it will negatively affect your real life relationships. Well, and you, I think awareness is always the first step in anything, anytime we're trying to evolve as humans. So let me ask you this. You mentioned a resource or a test where you can actually see where you're falling on the social comparison orientation scale. Is that, mm-hmm. is that something we can share with people or is that yeah. behind an academic wall or something? We can definitely share that with people. It's okay, a let's do. Scale. It should be widely available for folks. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I love it. I think that'd be super interesting. All right. We'll link to that. We'll put it in the show notes. Okay. Terrific. All right. Let's talk about another concept that I learned from you, social dominance orientation. So we just talked about social comparison orientation. This is social dominance orientation. I don't think I knew this existed. It's something about people who love a hierarchy. Tessa, tell <laughs> us more. crazy, right? So we know in social science, there's this construct called authoritarianism, which I think most of us are familiar with just in the political domain. We can apply that to people's kind of just outlooks in life. So people who are high on what's called social dominance orientation, they have this kind of firm belief that hierarchies are there for a reason. They like a hierarchy. Um, They like kind of knowing what it takes to climb to the top. So they're going to fight against things like um, wage caps for CEOs, you know, equity-based policies. They're even okay with being at the bottom of that hierarchy. It's insofar as they know how to climb up. So it's not about where you are on that kind of social status ladder. It's about your desire to to want to get there kind of mirrored with you being okay with this structure. Um, So if you live in a very hierarchical society or your organization is like a law firm, there's only two people at the top. There's, you know, a couple of people who make partner and, you know, everyone has to fight to get there. People high in social dominance orientation are okay with statements like, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get to the top, even if it means kicking people down on the way, things like that. Okay. Super interesting. And again, awareness is such a key factor in relationship building and rapport building and negotiation and persuasion and so on. Are there examples of these concepts where it's not even nefarious and this is just what people gravitate toward? Because I'm thinking of, I work with a lot of different industries and one of them is the federal and defense industry. And people who come from a military background have a comfort level with a hierarchy that maybe you're not going to get with a marketing agency based in Palo Alto. You know what I mean? And for me, it's helpful to know where they're coming from so I can meet them where they are. And again, it's just that awareness when it comes to communication, but kind of without embracing their point of view, but almost leaving space for it. Does that make any sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I'd say that these things like social comparison orientation and social dominance orientation aren't bad in and of themselves. They're only bad when people sort of choose to use them to do unethical things, or they they work in a place that encourages them to use them in unethical ways. The military, people who select in the military are high on SDO. There's research to support it because they're comfortable in a hierarchy. You know, they, they like that system, you know, and, and to be fair to them, 
hierarchies and status hierarchies tend to actually create work efficiencies. When it's really clear who's in charge and who's not, we don't have status conflict. We get stuff done. So there is kind of a benefit to it. So it's always kind of seeing these things as a feature and not a bug and thinking to yourself, what about this perspective is good? Well, for social dominance orientation, what is good is there's low status conflict because everyone knows where they stand. Everyone knows their job and their roles and they get it done. They don't fight with each other over who should be in charge because it's just kind of laid out very explicitly, you know, based on these very sort of shared agreed upon status roles and they don't have that conflict. So that's actually kind of a bright side of these things. And all of these things can be both features and bugs in the right context. That makes sense. Okay. I want to turn to a tip. (laughs) I was really surprised by this and I thought it was super interesting. And I also am coming at this from a background of working with women and mentoring women over time and being mentored by women and really paying attention to how we show up in professional spaces. So I was super interested to learn grabbing power early in a work environment even in a meeting, is an advantage. You say successful persuaders were those who asserted themselves at the beginning of the interaction. Tessa, can you use some examples and explain what you meant by that? Yes. So things like organizing the group, having everyone go around and say their names, coming up with a plan of sort of who's going to do what each week. These really simple tactics, the reason why they work is because they don't feel like persuasion. You know, if you come on too strong, everyone can kind of sense you from the moment. Oh, here comes Tessa uh, trying to like steer us in her direction again. But instead, if I come on and say, oh, there's a there's a couple of new folks here. How about we all just introduce ourselves quickly? I don't look like I'm trying to grab power. I actually just look organized. And then I have the veneer of a leader. And everything I do from then on is perceived through that veneer of leadership. I think it's useful for lots of reasons. One is, you know, we talk about imposter complex or imposter mm-hmm. syndrome a lot or, or, you know, trying to have a seat at the table or how to show up. And for some people, it's natural. For some people, you just are an automatic facilitator. In other cases, it takes some self-talk to get you to the point where you're willing to speak up and assert yourself and assert your opinion, even though you have one. Now, what I love about this, especially in a virtual communication environment, if you're already an introvert and or you're already struggling with speaking up, this is a great tip. So you're saying, for example, you get on the Zoom call or something and you say something entirely innocuous, like, hey, we have a new face on the call, let's do this, or calibrating everyone around you. You know, well, before the call starts, does anyone have any news or updates or anything yep. fun they want to share? Like yeah. those are low hanging fruits that can create an entry for someone who might be otherwise uncomfortable. So when we found this in our data, it was completely accidental. We had coded our negotiation tactics people were using. We had the quality of the arguments they were making. We had the number of words they said. We've, you know, coded for nonverbal behaviors like vocal dominance and not ending in an uptick and, and, you know, physical stuff. We coded these data for all the things that typically predict power in these kinds of contexts, and none of them did it. The only thing that did it was that behavior during those first couple minutes of the interaction where they went around and said, what is everyone's needs? It was just a complete accident that we found this pattern in our data. But I think it, it really speaks to the power of kind of subtle forms of having assertions and and stating 
your role in a group above and beyond being really heavy handed and coming on really strong. All right. Another thing that comes up for us when we talk about showing up and wanting to participate, wanting to create value, but feeling self-conscious or feeling like there's a risk associated with that, there's a term I want you to share with everyone to help mitigate those feelings. And that is the spotlight effect. So you say that a spotlight effect is a common bias that leads people to overestimate how much other people are paying attention to them. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Usually the spotlight effect gets manifested in one of two ways. One, we make contributions in teams. We say what we think is the most genius idea ever. And like, People aren't paying attention or, you know, the honest truth is they're in their own head thinking of their own genius idea. So we feel really shortchanged that people aren't giving us credit for stuff that we deserve, partly because we kind of forget what comes out of our mouths and what's in our heads. It, when we're kind of thinking about these things after the fact, we don't realize that maybe we said three words, even though we spent 35 minutes thinking about something. And I think the other thing is we just have this uh, incredible attunement to our own embarrassing behaviors. So if you've ever done something embarrassing, mispronounced someone's name, called them the wrong thing, fallen on your face, you know, whatever, spilled your coffee, whatever it is you've done, you probably lay in bed at night for three nights kind of iterating over that, but no one else is paying attention to you as much as we pay attention to ourselves. And we have a really hard time correcting this bias, but just think, did you notice anyone else's embarrassing things in the last two weeks? And if you can't think of anyone, then that's kind of a good perspective taking exercise. They can't think of you either. Um, we live in our heads and we forget how much of that is actually not only visible, but others, how much others are attuning to that stuff, like as it happens. I mean, we're all the star of our own play, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but people don't pay as much attention to you as you pay to yourself. I find this particularly useful in social situations for people who have some social anxiety or, you know, maybe they, maybe it's as simple as they're just not feeling it. Like they don't yeah. feel like they look great or they put on two pounds and all of a sudden they're uncomfortable. I'm being a little facetious, but you get the idea. And the thought here is, you know, I said this to my friend the other day. I was like, honey, like... <laughs> Sorry, you look amazing, but nobody cares. Yeah, but like it doesn't matter if you do or don't. That's the hard truth, right? And there's this great study showing that in Zoom, everyone just stares at themselves the entire time. <laughs> like eye tracking studies. We just stare at ourselves. We don't look at each other like at all. <laughs> Okay. I have to tell people why this is so funny to Tessa and I right now, because, and, and people who follow me on Instagram already know this, but I have this huge, I'm a walking euphemism because I have a huge bruise on my face right now. It's like a black and purple hematoma. It has five layers of makeup that will kill me, by the way, a totally toxic, <laughs> bought specially to cover it up. It didn't cover it up at all. <laughs> <laughs> like, like not at all. <laughs> and the way this happened to keep it short was an accident at the dentist's office. It involves a suction machine. I don't really want to talk about it, but the short version is my <laughs> dentist gave me a face hickey. Okay. It's fine. So this has been here for five days now. So for the first two days, I obviously wanted to crawl in a hole and die, but I, I have, I have stuff to do. So I get on the line with Tessa and we can see one another. And I'm like, Tessa, see this big, huge black and purple mark on my face. It's not a filter. It's my face. <laughs> and in all sincerity, in all sincerity, how many times has it caught your attention since the first 30 seconds of our call? I honestly stopped paying attention to it. <laughs> it's all I can see. I can see nothing else. I don't know what Tessa looks like because I've been staring at my chin. I'm paying more attention to your rings. I'm like, I like that ring. That one, the, the one with like the little like pearls on it. 
That's really good. And I think it's because you're putting it in front of your mouth all the time. So I really get to see your hand, Joy. Probably more than I would otherwise. I'm finding the biggest jewelry I possibly can. <laughs> and I'm also holding coffee cups in front of my face on a lot of conference calls these days. But <laughs> this, I was laughing because I am the metaphor. Nobody cares as much as you do. So if you have a minor embarrassment, if you have a gigantic hematoma on your face, whatever is going on with you, just know that no one is paying as much attention to you as you are paying to yourself. That's right. <laughs> Ever. Okay. <laughs> the things I do for this podcast. You just made it up. <laughs> okay. Let's turn our attention, Tessa, to some do's and don'ts and tips about effective communication. So we have learned what, you know, a jerk at work looks like and how they show up in different forms. But we've also learned some social psychology terms that are helpful outside of work, absolutely universally. Let's talk about what to do, what to not to do, Tessa, and how we can communicate more effectively, whether it's at work, whether it's in our social lives, our personal lives or elsewhere. The first thing that I do want to set the table with, though, is the so-called four horse of unhealthy conflict conversations. Now, this is a term that is also used in relationship counseling, etc. I think they are worth sharing here. And Tessa, can you just elaborate a little bit on why they're so dangerous? Yes. Okay. They are criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. And I have to say, my mind goes to marriage and romantic relationships yeah. here big time. Criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. Why are these so toxic? So I think most of us have this intuition of bringing up problems in relationships with starting with a criticism. So once you do that, you're kind of on this path towards kind of doom for the relationship. So criticism is coming to someone and instead of opening up with something you want them to do more of, you open up with something it's very critical, not just of their behavior, but them as a whole person. You know, so for a micromanager, you would say things like, you don't trust me or you smother me in a relationship. You're lazy. You don't do anything around the house. They tend to be these very big picture things that aren't specific about any one thing that person did, but are kind of this accumulation of a bunch of little things they did that by the time you bring it up is this huge kind of problem. And they're immediately going to respond with extreme negative emotion, anger, frustration, contempt. You're just kind of getting the ball rolling for these negative patterns. You know, from there, people tend to get very defensive with each other. And once you're kind of in this cycle where one person's angry, the other one is engaging in reverse blame, the other one's getting defensive, it ends in what's called stonewalling. So this is just kind of shutting down. And in fact, in marriage literature, we see that stonewalling is kind of one of the best predictors of who gets a divorce, because it means that conflict in itself isn't bad. But once you stonewall, that means that conflict conversation went really poorly. That's closing your arms, shutting down, avoiding eye contact, kind of sitting still like a statue until that person leaves the room, refusing to talk to them. Um, and this is just a pattern that's very common in relationships. And I think breaking that requires us to just start these conversations very differently. How 
do you navigate in these tricky circumstances at work where there is risk associated with being vulnerable? And I think any honest conversation about anything that matters requires some vulnerability, which is not always fun. What do you recommend, Tessa, when it comes to being challenged at work with your dynamic with one or more people and you it feels scary to be vulnerable? So, so what have we got left in our toolkit? It's very scary to be vulnerable. And I think I walked through kind of how to do these conversations better, but they're still going to be uncomfortable. You're going to feel really uncomfortable giving upward feedback. And if anyone comes to you to give you that feedback, your heart's going to race. That discomfort is just a part of the reality of this. And I think sometimes our intuition is to avoid them, to avoid the discomfort, instead of just kind of being honest with ourselves and saying, okay, this is going to be uncomfortable, but there's degrees of discomfort. And the more I practice it and I make these conversations small, not big, the better we'll get at it. So we have an intuition to like just bite off a bigger you know, a chunk that we can't chew with the metaphor, more food than we can swallow, whatever it is. (laughs) That's the one we take on too much. We'll take on too much. And instead you actually want to have frequent conversations like this that are about very specific, small things. So if your micromanager only gives you say 40 minutes to turn a project around or edits it within five minutes of you giving it to them, you need to go to them right away and say, I love that you give me this great feedback. Start with something you want them to do more of. But five minutes isn't enough time. And that's a very small criticism. It's not going to feel as grandiose and scary because it's very specific to one thing. They have a harder time denying it, a harder time engaging in reverse blame. The defenses are down for them. The anxiety is down for you. And so our intuition is to just not do this very often, but early, often, and small is a better way to do it. And then at the end of the conversation, do something you're going to hate, which is, do you have any feedback for me? No one ever wants that. But you have to ask it because then it actually makes it feel like a two-way conversation and not you delivering a criticism. Okay. You said early, frequent, and small. Is that what yes. you said? So, you know, a couple times a day even. And because you're doing it that frequently, you just want really small issues to be brought up. Nothing big and scary. We don't typically criticize people over small things. We feel like it's petty. But having these conflict conversations over little things will prevent you from ever having to have it about the big things because you're catching the problems early. Yeah. And constructive doesn't mean bad. Yeah. It's just it's constructive when it's small. It's threatening when it's big. That's very interesting. I think that it took me a little bit too long to realize that difficult conversations don't get better with age. Yeah. And you want them to, you're like, this will be easier. Why hasn't the talent kicked in yet? (laughs) Yeah. Also practicing that muscle builds that muscle. So that sounds really unpleasant. It sounds like the last thing I want to do is get really good at delivering tough news, but that's not what I mean. Having conversations that involve friction, whether it's with a customer service rep for something that you wanted to your boss or your client or your partner in life, practice puts the fear back in its box. When you right. when you show and do and live through it, you're creating social proof that these are manageable. Absolutely. I mean, everything from breaking up with your therapist to complaining that your meal isn't cooked properly at a restaurant. Life is full of friction. It's full of your expectations not being met. It's full of miscommunications about goals and people's needs. I study close relationships and half miscommunication is like what goes on in the bedroom. These same principles apply. It's just communication. And I am fully with you that putting the fear back in the box is critical. And when you practice this, you just don't get scared. You actually just get a reputation as being a really clear communicator who knows how to get things done and knows how to 
bridge the gap between like what people mean to say and what they're actually saying. And you did offer something that I want to reiterate. You offered that we need to come full circle in these conversations and avail ourselves to feedback and say, and what feedback do you have for me? Now, I might not do that with a customer service rep. Right. Obviously, here's the restaurant. <laughs> what feedback do you have for me? <laughs> How am I showing up for you here? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so two quickies for you. What do you say? Like, what are, what do you actually coach people to say if someone is trying to take credit for your idea? We talked about credit stealers. This happens all the time. Even if it's, even if it's someone just repeating what you said in the same meeting. (laughs) So hit us with some language that you recommend. So our intuition is to often blame them for taking credit, but the first principle is credit stealing is often not intentional. So you need to focus on the process of credit granting and not on preventing credit stealing. In fact, many people who kind of take what you say and they deliver it in a more concise way and they have voice and they're leaders, stuff is just going to stick to them. So instead of saying, stop stealing my credit, when they're just kind of standing there and all your stuff is sticking to them like glue because other people are putting it there, You have to talk about the process of actually making sure that credit is granted back to you. So if it's someone like that, you can actually go to them and kind of take advantage of the bulldozing behaviors and say, you have voice in this room. Can you really help echo my contributions and the contributions of other people who are actually not getting credit for stuff? And actually for women at work, the best way of actually getting credit isn't to claim it yourself. It's to have another person in the room constantly remind the team that Tessa had a great point. Thank you, Tessa, for saying that. And you have to play this role for everyone. So it's not about confrontation or confronting that credit stealer. It's about bringing them into into the fold to try to get them to grant you credit and bringing others into the fold to grant you credit when they're doing this to sort of serve as an anecdote to their behavior. And I think on top of that, having just super clear communication and taking notes the minute a meeting is over is critical because our memories are fallible and we often assume the credit was should be given to the person who who looks like a leader, who has the trappings of a leader. So writing things down immediately after, especially in chaotic meetings, is a huge thing that a lot of us don't do. But I really think it comes down to this process of altering thinking about how you grant credit and less about preventing the stealing of credit from one person. So I should stop saying, oh, that was a great idea when I said it five minutes ago. You should get someone else to say that on your behalf. <laughs> but you have power, so you can get away with that. As a leader, I'm able to say, yes, that sounds like what Sarah said. And I think you're both in alignment here. Yeah. I am yeah. very in alignment comfortable. Here. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I do find it's a little bit of a trope, but I do find that this happens to women a lot more just based on my own experience. Yeah. So one of the things that I'm picking up from Tessa's work is to make sure that we're advocating for one another. Let's just all behind the scenes form like a quorum. Yeah. And when you're in a public space, make sure that you draw connections and help grant attribution. I love the way that you, the way that you put that you also share, cause you're super specific with your work, which I love, but you, you give tips like, you know, going to someone and saying to them, Oh, I noticed that in the meeting, the two of us were sharing some pretty similar ideas. What's your perspective? And you're aligning with them rather than fighting with them. Yeah. I think even if you think it's BS and you're pretty sure they stole credit, it's all about getting that threat down, right? So we go back to those four, four horsemen, starting with a criticism, just, just bring that threat up and you, you're going to go down that path of doom. So by actually just making it a question of what happened in that meeting, instead of telling them what happened in that meeting, you're already kind of in a place where they're not going to feel super defensive. 
everyone's defensive and they got the spotlight effect. And there's a good chance that they think they made more contribution than you think they did. Because almost everyone thinks they make like 80% contributions um, to teamwork. It's just another human bias. So framing it as a question is a good way to kind of start that conversation. And I don't want to belabor the point, but I honestly think that this happens a lot. So I'm going to say one more thing that I do in real life. And that is when it does happen to me and it tends to happen again without nefarious intent, <laughs> you yeah. know, I, I tend to work with people with very strong personalities and everyone has an opinion and that's all great. But if I share something and someone else shares it five minutes later, I'm very comfortable saying, yes, that's what I was saying five minutes ago. I don't think I was clear enough. You yeah. and I agree that. And then I go on to say the thing that matters yep. and that is not combative. And it's not even false humility because I'm happy to take some accountability and whether I wasn't clear enough or, you know, I didn't bang my fist on the table. When yeah. When you weren't loud, you didn't yell it. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. And I think that that's a skill, right? You have to learn how to sort of both take credit and not look like you're pushing up against another person or you're jockeying for status because that tends to be the direction we go in. And so both the sort of, I said that, plus I wasn't clear is like a little bit humility added to that. That's a skill, you know, the more power you have, the better you get at that thing. So for low power people, we just have to like do that for them a little bit until they climb up. I think your intent matters. And this is what you're saying, Tessa, in a dynamic, in a group dynamic, in a social dynamic, if your intent is to one up somebody, if your intent is to be seen, if your intent is to be validated by whomever you're around, you're going to show up differently. And that's worth examining. It's so different than if your intent is truly to get to a resolution or a new idea or a healthy dynamic where everybody is sharing and, and you know building on one another's ideas. So whatever your intent is, it's worth examining if you're not getting the outcome that you want. That's right. And I think a lot of people will ask me, how do I know when enough is enough? It's time to kind of walk away or end this relationship with my jerk at work. And I say, what's their intent? Are they motivated to change or are they actually motivated to treat you badly because it helps some kind of higher level goal they have? That's the critical variable is intent. And if there's no motivation to change and they like the path they're on or the same for you, it's very hard to kind of reconcile these issues. All right. Last question for you. I could have used you 20 years ago. How do you get someone to step up if they are freeloading on the back of the team? If you have someone and you don't think they're pulling their weight and you're not trying to be combative and start World War III with them, yeah. what tips do you have? First tip is you need to get together with everyone on the team, have people document the work they agreed to do and the work they did that they didn't agree to do. Typically, free riders will spread their work out among five people. So you need to collect that data. You need to go to them with that data. And don't kind of yell at them and accuse them. Remind them of why you wanted them on the team in the first place. We really miss this aspect of you. They're already disengaged. You want to pull them back in and don't let them walk away with excuses. Come up with a very strategic plan of what they're going to do and when and what will happen if they don't follow through with those plans. It's kind of a three-step process. I have a tip. Yeah, let's hear your tip. Send them a copy of Jerks at Work and yeah. like sign it. Yeah, and highlight it. That they Dog need. ear, just a couple <laughs> key pages. Yeah. From your whole team. <laughs> Tessa, this is brilliant. Tell us where we can find you. 
you can go to tessawestauthor.com. And if you go to my website, you can take my quizzes, which are in the back of my book and get immediate feedback on them. So you don't have to score them yourself. Okay. And you'll send me that social comparison orientation Orientation scale testing thing. Okay. That sounds great. All right, Tessa, before I let you go, what is one thing that you are loving right now that you want to share with everybody? Okay. I hope this isn't too personal, but I love this product called Eucora, which prevents urinary tract infections for women. It's like a whole system and it has saved my life. Eucora. How do you spell it? Like it sounds? Yeah. Like just like it sounds. And there are these like drinks you can drink. It's like a probiotic system. It is my favorite product and I cannot live without it. I sound like I'm working for them. I am not. I just truly love this product. (laughs) Is this your, is this your MLM? (laughs) It's free to start. You only need 14 women to sign on. (laughs) I'll put my up chain link in the chain link. You are going to be making $30,000 a month before you know it. Okay. So not your network marketing scheme, but you Cora. <laughs> an actual product that showed up in my Instagram feed one day and I bought it. <laughs> and you bought it and it worked. Yeah. It's great. Tessa, this is why I do this because we find just all these hidden gems. This is yeah. terrific. Hidden gems. That's, that's why this is terrific. Thank you so much, Tessa. We got to get off the phone. Yes. <laughs> super fun. Oh my God. This is the most fun I've had all day. And I've had so much fun today. (laughs) Thank you. Okay. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed today's show and got something out of it that you can use. If you did, and you want to learn more, find me on Instagram at on air with Ella or get the show notes and links at on There's no with it's just on Thanks for listening. Thank you for sharing the show and thanks for inspiring me. You are quite simply awesome.